Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenov, your host. And today is Wednesday, April 6th. Our, uh, our unofficial election results came back last night. Uh, I posted them up on the Switchblade. You can find them there. And uh, we had some wins. We really did. Um, so the, the, the big news is the, the, um, the trustees that are in, there's two incumbents, which we kind of expected. I mean, incumbents always kind of have uh, a, a pretty good chance of being reelected if things are going moderately well. So we had, uh, but we did have a new addition. One of the, uh, the picks that I had put out there for my endorsement, Kirby Nelson Hazelton. Um, is now an officially a town trustee, will be soon anyway. Um, Marie J. Senek has uh, retained her position along with Scott Webermeyer. Um, and we, we had some wins, in my opinion, my humble opinion, um, on the ballot questions. And uh, we had a yes on ballot question one, which was whether to permit the newspaper publication of ordinances by title only. And yes, on ballot question two, whether to eliminate the requirement that payments or bills and statements concerning contracts and rebates be published in the newspaper. And then we had a yes on ballot issue 3A, which is whether the town shall be authorized to collect, retain, and spend or reserve all revenues it receives from lawful sources without raising taxes, the Tabor issue. Um, You can see all of the unofficial election results at estes.org forward slash elections. And there's a link to all this information in the article I put out last night. Um, And uh, approximately about 46% of active voters registered in the Estes Park town limits cast ballots in the April 5th election. This is, this is down a little bit. The average is usually 50 to 60%. So, um, you know, I think it just, we, we've got to just take this as, as motivation, you know, any endeavor you're doing, um, in, in, in my experience, you got to fail at like a dozen times before you really learn how to do things correctly. So we just gotta, we gotta up our game and just get more organized, um, for that kind of younger vote and, and moving the town, the direction we want to go. So, um, we'll have to, we'll have to do some brainstorming on that before the next election uh, as to how we can better organize and get out the vote and, and be sure to include, um, our uh, Spanish-speaking populations and and the other various community populations we have. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I I think we can do a lot better than forty-six percent of active voters. Um, so the approved ballot questions take effect upon certification of these election results. The newly elected trustees will be sworn in at a town board meeting scheduled for April twenty-six at seven p.m. You can get more information on that um, again at estes.org forward slash elections. Or you can uh, ask direct questions to the town clerk's office. Their number is 970-577-4777. I had Mayor Koenig um, send a uh, a statement out to me uh, shortly thereafter the election results were put out. And um, it says, quote, elections are the primary way through which the townspeople of Estes Park deliver general feedback to their town government and give specific instructions to their individual representatives. A heartfelt thanks to all candidates who stepped up to serve. Although each of the six candidates was well qualified, the people have spoken and victory has been awarded to three. 
I look forward to working with them to provide for the common good of our townspeople and encourage the others to seek ways to contribute to that good as well. And hopefully we'll see that. Um, you know, I think we've got, so I, I, I would hate for the, the candidates that didn't make it this time around um, to get discouraged and, and just no longer plug in. I think uh, it's important. I think their voices are important. And uh, they had some really, there were some good ideas out there. And we need to keep moving forward with those. So today's uh, interview is going to be a little different. Um, so there is a, a group of students in town for about seven weeks coming out from the uh, far off land of Massachusetts um, from the Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And they are here studying the recent wildfires and the effects on the community, town officials and residents. And um, they uh, they reached out to me for an interview just talking about what it's like to live in a a place like Estes that has so many of these wildfire and natural disaster issues and just kind of what that experience has been like, what, how the town feels about it. Um, you know, community members like myself, you know, what we've been through and, and, you know, moving forward, how do we best, um, how do we best safeguard against these things that are, are now becoming so commonplace that uh, there really is no fire season anymore. It just is, you know, when are they kicking up and, uh, you know, when, what, when's the next one going to be and how can we best prepare for that? So, um, I thought it was a really good interview. Anytime I do an interview from, you know, someplace nationally, I record it just so I have my own copy because a lot of times I want to turn it into, um, a podcast later on because they're great conversations. And I think this is a great conversation and, you know, it comes from a, uh, you know, a, a group of students, young, young adults that are out here um, for a school project, putting together a study. And um, I thought the, the conversation was really an interesting one and relevant to life here in the Estes Valley. And uh, so I thought I'd throw it up there and uh, share it with everyone because it, it concerns all of us. And, uh, you know, again, this is just a, an impromptu interview I did. Um, I wasn't prepared for it or anything, so I may have some, some mistakes that I have made in the thing, but this is just my own personal opinion and speaking as a resident, um, of, of the Estes Valley community. So, uh, yeah, let's just get into that. It's short. It's about 30 minutes. Um, but it's a great, in, a great, uh, little conversation. So let's just jump into that now. So to start off with, I guess... Uh, how long have you been in the Estes Valley area? In between four and five years at this point. Okay. Yeah, so fairly new, but my family, um, they've been here for since the 80s. Okay. So my aunt and uncle had a business here in town, and uh, we wound up, after taking care of them at the end of their life, we, we inherited the house, and uh, so I'm raising my family here now, too. Cool. And that's within the town of Estes? Yeah, we live right in Right up near the hospitals on the ABCs. It's called the ABCs. Right. Okay. Um, so that means that you've been here for kind of a lot of the major wildfire events in the recent years, whether that's East Troublesome. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if Rick told you much about me. I'm kind of one of the media guys in town. Right. I used to write for the paper and do a lot of photojournalism. So I, I took many of the pictures that went viral around the world. Wow. Uh, the coverage of that. Okay. 
Um, so I guess one of the things that uh, Rick told us that you'd be really good at answering is sort of like what how the community feels about wildfires, since I think you're probably really in tune with the way that people feel. Yeah. So I guess what is the current level? What is the sense of like kind of maybe not fear, but like risk um, and expectation and kind of apprehension that the citizens of you know the area have? Well, it, in one regard, we're kind of used to it. I mean, I people here like to say we we have. You know, we don't literally have one, but we like to say that we have, you know, a 500-year natural disaster every two to three years. Right. Because um, we have a lot of floods, we have a lot of fires, you know. Um, so, you know, we, to a certain extent, part of living in a place like Essex Park, where you're, you know, up near such rugged terrain sure. and, and beauty, that it, it's kind of part of that. And... So you, you kind of go in, at least if, if you don't know it going in, you, you figure it out real quick that there are, you know, a lot of dangers along with that. And that's part of it, you know, natural dangers, whether that be bears trying to break into your house right. in the springtime or, you know, mountain lions taking um, pets, things like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's just a different type of lifestyle. And we, you know, we don't have to deal with a lot of the, say violence that you may have in a more urban area sure um but there there's certainly our own flavor of danger with natural disasters so right now you know moving into things and and things seem to be to to be accelerating at a very quick rate Mm -hmm. lately i mean um you know it was nine years or so before we had you know previous to last year the fires of last year um you know, we had a fire up near Fort Collins, and there was one down near Colorado Springs. But mm-hmm. it seems to have gone into kind of a, a rapid-fire mode recently with just, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of us attribute that to directly to climate change. Right. That we're seeing such dramatic changes in our environment, um, you know, where tomorrow we're going to be, we're already under a, a weather alert with 60 to 80 mile an hour wind gusts that are supposed to be happening starting tonight throughout the day. So we watch out for things like that um, because, you know, the Kruger Rock fire, we had just a few months, you know, yeah. on the other side of the wintertime, um, not during a traditional typical fire season, um, you know, it was a result of down power lines. There's just been a major um, class action suit um, leveled against the, the power company outside of Boulder for the Marshall Fire. Um, it's speculated that Kruger Rock was at. We don't know on Solshine. I actually just talked to the fire district this morning, and um, that's still inconclusive. Um, but, you know, anytime you have something with like a windstorm, which happens every time, every time there's a big shift in weather, you have this windstorm that happens beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've lost, you know, a section of my roof about four feet long, um, earlier in this winter, you know, and we right. have a good roof. We've got a good house. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's Wyoming windy up here. Uh, it used to be just kind of a short period of time through the winter, mm-hmm. but now it seems to be changing and, and evolving. So people are, you know, they're hesitant. They're, 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 you know, we're all on edge a little bit. We're yeah. all always watching the weather and what's happening there. Um, there are, you know, some initiatives happening within the, town as far as town administration goes as far as ways to safeguard against you know down power lines starting because we, we've seen that a lot um <clears throat> so you know but what what can you really do you love living here and you know there's there's 
natural disaster dangers anywhere now across the country, really. Um, you know, I don't know of any safe haven from whatever the flavor of natural disaster is. So it's just life is life is becoming more dangerous. And, uh, you know, we see that as a community, but we also try to take steps and we've got, you know, we do have a very dynamic, great community here with a lot of um, intelligent people really working towards some solving some of these issues, not that we're going to solve them, but, you know, at least make it better for, you know, our kids. So, yeah. So I guess that's sort of like just taking a situation that's a really tough situation and just living in it. Do you think that in the wake of particularly East Troublesome and Cameron Peak, which is probably a really scary wake-up call, um, do you think that people's, like, behaviors and risk adverseness changed? Um, I think I think people are certainly taking more seriously fire mitigation, you know, when, when the fire district puts out, you know, get ready for fire season type mm-hmm. uh, uh, messaging. Uh, people are taking more seriously. They're, they're definitely looking at kind of vulnerabilities around their properties and such. And really beginning to, you know, we can finally begin to talk about climate change right. as, as a reality instead of, oh, that's just a hoax or that's just crazy talk, you know, ramped up by what, you know, whatever <laughs> side. Sure. Um, you know, and South Park kind of got it, got it, hit it, the nail on the head with the, the whole man, bear, pig alliteration of climate change. And, and we're finally to the point now that, you know, it's ripping through our community so we can start talking about the dangers yeah. of it. Um, so conversations are beginning to happen. Um, you know, our, our, one of our representatives, Joe Nagis, Goose, um, he's really taking the helm with um, getting federal funding and, and really trying to safeguard the state along with Governor Polis. Mm-hmm. So there, there is action happening on a political side of things to try to make things better. Right. Um, you know, there is no cure for this. There is no you know, shot you can get and it's all better. You know, much like COVID, we're, we're just going to have to learn to live with these new realities and adapt as best we can. Right. So I guess when it comes to that, I know that especially maybe out here, there can be a lot of sentiment where people don't want to really make those adaptations and don't really want to go in that direction. Do you see a lot of that in, in the Estes Valley where people are kind of resistant to making those changes or making those? No, I think I think people are pretty on board with things, you know. Again, you get this small town and, and mountain towns are a little different beast altogether because, and especially Estes, I mean, we have 4.7 to 5 million people who come through in a summer. Right. But there's only 6,000 of us that live here year round. And so, you know, in the wintertime, we all get to know each other real well down at the dive bar mm-hmm. and you know so we we i would say people are more on board with change and, and moving towards better directions and not at this point um just because we're learning the lessons right. of, of these historic fires and pandemic and everything else yeah so i guess when you're experiencing that in like <coughs> a very tight-knit community like this it's very different than you know when your community is sprawled out over like a huge area i think it makes kind of cohesiveness easier yeah you know um we all gotta work together at this because we don't have anyone else to really call you know it's all dependent upon the people who live here sure so i guess moving a little bit um so obviously you're a reporter and i assume you've done a lot of reporting on this sort of issue over the last few years how do you think that your role in that or the media's role in that sort of amplifies people's perceptions of this do you think that it's 
really crucial? Do you think that you played an important role in kind of getting people ready? I think, I think, yes, we, we, we play several important roles, you know, getting out, um, uh, with my, so I have a new outlet. I stopped working for the paper and I have an outlet called the Colorado Switchblade, which is like a Substack okay. um, based outlet. Um, but, you know, everyone in town is is following it. And so uh, with a traditional newspaper where you're only printing in a small town like Wednesdays and Fridays or Mondays and Fridays, right. um, you know, you can't get out quick information. And a lot of these type of natural disaster things the, what you're able to do with you know this this newer media, um, out, these outlets, is get out that information pretty instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my largest days, as far as traffic count goes, um, are on days where I'm talking about evacuation notices and um, you know where where the fire boundaries are, how much of it's contained, you know, kind of those updates on natural disasters, right. um, you know, dwarf. You know the other stuff because everyone needs to know it, and right. there really isn't necessarily other than the nine one one reverse, you know, emergency service stuff, um, which only goes into so much. You know, having a place you can go that has all of that information, and you know where to get more information, people seem to find very valuable. So a lot of it does do that, and it is important because you know we don't have a, a chant a news station here that is able to produce a newscast immediately like that. We don't right. have, you know, our newspapers come out twice a week. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're purchased by large um, global conglomerates that are, that are hedge fund owned. Right. Um, so they don't have the funding that they need, but you can take someone who, you know, like myself, Substack doesn't cost anything. It just costs plus sweat equity. Um, so it just makes things easier, and yeah, I think it is important. And, and seeing those images and seeing how bad, say, a flood is that maybe not be, may not be here in town, but you know, going up towards Glen Haven or something where it's a very specific flood that's happening because of a very specific burn scar. Right. Um, you know, we don't necessarily know how bad it is until someone gets out there with video and, and photography and says, "No, these guys are really because it may just be a, a sprinkle over here, but over." You know, five miles away, there could be a, a flash flood going on that's, right. that's really affecting people's lives. So it does play a very crucial, important role for just you know community knowledge, knowing what's going on with our neighbors, knowing where there's when there's dangerous situations happening to avoid. Yeah. So. Yeah, that sounds like a really crucial, like really important information source that I don't think we'd heard of before. So that's really interesting. Do you? Do Do you think there's like a sort of two way relationship between you and the town, or you and the county, where they work with you to try and get the information out certainly quicker. more the town um you know i i i i have a lot of connections into the town but we're again we're we're, we're a different beast because we're such a small community right. you know there's only i i'm for the town record paper record there is one lead reporter and he lives in boulder over an hour away so he can't cover that type of stuff mm-hmm. you know there's a great editor there's a publisher that lives outside of town, and there's an ad guy. So, you know, just because I'm no longer working for the rec- people of record doesn't change that I'm a writer and that I'm, you know, this is how I'm wired and this is what I'm doing. And these people have all followed me from the time, you know, the, the years that I wrote for the paper. Um, so we've got that rapport built already. They know I'm a part of the community. They know I'm plugged in and invested because I, my whole family's here. Um, so, yeah, it, it makes... 
the things, you know, you have to have a good relationship with your, your public information officer. You have to have a good relationship with your town administrators and, and you know, town council. Um, not that you're not calling out the shit that needs to be called out. Sure. You do. Um, that's a critical part as well. But, you know, it's just kind of a different dynamic. Like, we all have to live with each other up here. And that, that affects things like policing. Like, we find that um, we're very lucky in our policing up here that we don't have a lot of the same issues that you might have in a very urban area just down the valley because, you know, the officers have to live here too, you know. So everyone's got to get along and play nice and, and treat people as human beings to a certain extent. Not that that bad shit doesn't happen. It does. It sure. happens everywhere. But it seems to be at a, a, a lower frequency here than you would see in very urban areas where, you know, you don't have that same community connection because there's just so many people, millions of people in an area, you know, you can't have the same connections that you can have with such a small area here. And, and I think it, it's kind of this, this um, golden zone where, you know, Estes Park is small enough to really make a difference still, but doing some big things and, and growing. And um, that allows certain opportunities for those that really want to plug into the community and, and help shape the way it's it's growing and evolving, that they can actually have some traction with that, yeah, um, and not have to be you know a, a holdout member of, of you know the, the political system, and you don't have to have a lot of money, right? You just have to really you know have good intentions, and then back those up with real action. Yeah, it is really interesting coming here from you know Worcester, Massachusetts, where we go to school, where you know just seeing the way that people interact with each other here is totally different than we would ever see in Worcester because like, you know, yeah. there's a shop full of people, chances are at least a bunch of them know each other, which is such an interesting dynamic for us. And I can definitely see how that sort of influences. Yeah, you know, yeah. everyone readiness. knows who you are. So you kind of, you got to <laughs> be on better behavior than maybe if you're just some anonymous person down, you know, in the middle of the mix, right. uh, you know, because everyone, you, if you, <laughs> you do something stupid and, and fucked up, People are going to know who you are and call you out on it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to just be anonymous. Right. Uh, do you think that contributes to the sense of community that people have, like, helping each other out during an evacuation, like, during those emergency periods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there were times, you know, I remember one of the first things that I was thinking of is when we had when we had the um, the big fires last year, and there was a point in time where we had troublesome we had the fire going on up near Boulder Canyon, mm -hmm. and then we had the Cameron Peak fire all converging at once. And so, and it was towards the end of the year, Trail Ridge Road out going over the divide was shut down. Right. 34 was shut down at one point. So we had basically one route of escape due to these different fires to get out of town. And you know, that's as a, as a reporter, when I started calling the city saying, what are your contingency plans for, you know, getting people that are mobility impaired out of town? What are you, what are you going to do for the people that are, you know, in the retirement home that you're trying to shut down and they, they still haven't figured out what they're doing, but how are you going to get them out if there's one route of egress and everyone's trying to get out of town at once and this fire is just blowing into town? Right. Um, so, yeah, and then you, to, to their credit, they really, they had buses ready, they were getting things together. It wasn't perfect, but, you know, they were already working on those, like, what, what, what's our strategy here? What, what do we, what, what are we not thinking of? Um, and luckily enough, you know, that, that I got evacuated twice that year. The first time 
um, was when there was one road. And uh, so we, we just got down and then came back. The second time, 34 and 36 had opened up. And okay. I think and then seven was going up. And so there was much more there. So I was able to stay and, and photograph the fires as they were coming you know, over the edges of the town and coming down into town. Um, and we were one of the last families out, um, but you know, that's because of my job. Right. And so, you know, I had my daughters and my wife kind of go down first. Um, and I went straight to the ER after because I had smoke inhalation yeah. issues. Um, I guess one of the things that we heard from, I think it was the town administrator, was that when, during the evacuation, like a lot of the alerts that were coming in from the county had either, maybe not inaccurate, but like incomplete information. So these alerts would come in that would say like, you know, Route 34 is open for egress, but they wouldn't talk about all the other routes. So then everyone kind of gets pushed into this one direction. Right. Do yeah. you think, yeah, do you think like the local perspective like sort of helped alleviate those issues? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, there were issues with communication. There were alerts coming in from the, the LIDA system and whatnot from the county, which is, you know, county seat is um, basically a, an hour away. Right. Um, and so, you know, and there's no cell phone service from town to, you know, whether you're going to Loveland or Longmont or Granby, you have an hour worth of time where you do not have cell phone service, which can cause miscommunication issues. Um, and so, yeah, there was, and, and during the fire, I remember getting a call. He was, um, he wasn't, it's, he was Lieutenant Life at the time, not Captain Life. And, um, you know, him and, and some of the other higher ups talking about how there, there's miscommunication happening and we need to figure this out. So, there, you know, they were reaching out to get direct lines to the media and whatnot so that we could get that out as quickly as we could to, you know, the, the people of the community. I guess that's really kind of very unique to have like a Substack outlet like that be something that's maybe fixing that. Yeah, well, I mean, at the, at the time I was with the paper, so that wasn't okay. during that, so but, you know, during Kruger Rock and, and everything on since then, yes, it's, it is unique. And, you know, I'm working with some, you know, a guy who, who writes for the Columbia Journalism Review and, and whatnot, he does kind of the news behind the news, and he's doing a big um, study um, about the, the changing um, environment of local journalism, especially here in Colorado, mm -hmm. with, you know, you have all of these papers that are being bought up by these vulture funds, and they're just being wrung out for the last little bit of profit before they die. Right. So where does that leave us when it comes to local journalism, which plays such a crucial role? And luckily enough, we do have things like Substack or, you know, Newsbreak is another big one here in Colorado um, with these online outlets, whether it's a direct outlet from the writers and journalists themselves or, you know, an aggregate which has a, a, a community of them that's writing. Um, you know, they're, we're having to evolve right now or we wouldn't have it. Right. You know, there's no way when you have a paper that's being done and, you know, the, the writers don't live in town. They don't know what's going on with evacuation routes and, you know, the, the flowing dynamic. Um, so it, it's crucial and it's, thank the gods that we've figured something out anyway. Right. So. I guess another question from the wildfire angle of this is like, do you think that as journalism moves towards this kind of like, sort of smaller, more local model that it's tougher to get a story out to the world or to even to the country or to the state? Um, I mean, 
like yeah, sort of makes people aware I mean, of the issues. You know, just having an established newspaper record, people go there, other news agencies go there. When this transition period, we're, we're beginning to figure that out. Right. Um, but, you know, it takes time to build that readership. Right. Um, and that's where, you know, posting on a, you've got to cross post on Facebook and Twitter and such. And, you know, there's, there's kind of this community that sprung up that wasn't necessarily there where you have these independent journalists across the state that are following each other on Twitter, following each other, you know, in these, there's that guy I was telling you about, he does a Colorado news behind the news where mm-hmm. he's talking about these issues to other journalists across the state. Right. Um, so that allows us to network and connect better. And, um, you know, we still have a long, long way to go because we're just figuring this out as we go. Right. Um, and we don't have any funding. You know, we don't have big advertisers. We don't have some big corporation with pockets that, you know, to right. invest it in a little bit. We're figuring it out. You know, I do what I do out of the back of my bedroom, you know, <laughs> in my house. Now, granted, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an author and an artist, so I've always worked out of my house. You know, I, I write books and do art shows and stuff. But I've, so I've always kind of worked out of my house. But, you know, we, we're figuring this out as we go. Yeah. We're figuring it out, you know, as it evolves. So we don't have all the answers, but we'll figure something out. Right. It is interesting to see because, like, when we were doing sort of our background research before we came to Colorado, you know, being from across the country, basically, we had barely even heard about East Troublesome or Cameron Peak. We got a lot of news about, we were reading news stories about Cougar Rock a lot, but of course East Troublesome and Cameron Peak was like a much bigger evacuation event for the town. So it's just interesting how that communication kind of got distorted um, Mm -hmm. when you're trying to, you know, have it reach a larger audience. Yeah. But, um, so I guess um, changing over a little bit, um, I know you said that like the community in general is pretty like, on the same page about this stuff. Is there anyone that you've talked to or interviewed or worked with in the town that has like a different perspective or unique perspective? Not really. I mean, um, you definitely get people who come and move here with kind of this idealized notion of what life's going to be here. <coughs> and excuse me, they've got to kind of figure out like winters are really tough here. It's not just like it is in the summertime. You have to earn your winters in a mountain environment um you've got to earn your your place here with with the the natural disasters that happen in a mountain area um with wildlife so it's a learning curve and either people figure that out pretty quick or we find them kind of moving on within a a year or two pretty quickly as well um but you know things have just been so bad that like you know people don't want to lose their houses we don't want to lose our schools we don't want to lose our town because i mean let's face it this town is what maybe five miles long, a narrow corridor, right. one fire coming down that, and we lose everything. Right. So, and we saw that. We saw that just down the road, an hour away, going towards a city that we, you know, anytime we go to the airport or anywhere else, we're driving through the wreckage of the Marshall Fire in Broomfield, and that's a stark reminder of how lucky we got. So, really, I haven't run into anyone, and, you know, granted, I, 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 you know, I, I have a fairly limited set of friends, but everyone in town knows me. And, you know, they tell me plenty of times when they're pissed off about something else. So, you know, I, I think with fire danger and natural disaster, like we've just been beaten down so badly yeah. and gotten so lucky. Like we're, we're, we're not listening to those voices that may be dissenting and, and trying to say there isn't an issue. Because, right. You know, 
It's just like calling the sky red. Right. Which it was, you know, <laughs> during the fires. It was the crimson red. But, you know, it, it's just, you got to face reality. You can't have that kind of, um, you know, uh, cognitive disconnect with, with the reality of where we're at. Right. I mean, that's definitely, that's true for residents for sure. But what about, do you think that people who come in like transiently, like for a week over the summer? Because I guess we were lucky oh, enough to have yes, all the wildfires during November when there aren't too many guests. But what if there was to be one like in July? Do you think oh, yeah. No, no. It's, and that's part of the, the issues is, you know, if, if we had enough trouble kind of getting 6,000 people out and a few thousand that were there as tourists, how bad is it going to be when we have, you know, a million people in town? You know, when we, that overlap and that convergence of, you know, many, many thousands of people in town um, trying to get out with, along with the local population. And we saw this with COVID, you know, we, we were pretty good with our protocols here. You know, we were pretty pro go get your vaccine and, you know, wear a mask. And there were a lot of people didn't like wearing a mask, but they did it because they wanted to go out to the bar. They wanted to get food. You know, you didn't have too many of the, the issues you saw on social media and whatnot with kind of these, this clash of culture. Um, but you did see more of it with the, the, the tourist demographics that were coming from places that maybe had a different view of things culturally. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a bit of culture clash that was going on there. So, yeah, that is an issue. And we see that even with things as, as, as benign as, like, approaching wildlife or, you know, stopping on the highway because there's a, a bighorn ram or an elk. Right. And they're stopping in the middle of the highway. Like, just because you're here and you're a tourist and you've never seen a huge elk before doesn't mean you get to block traffic on Highway 36, which is one of our only arteries down because, you know, yes, we see it every day, but we also have doctors appointments we have work we got to get to we have appointments you can't and you know there's a lot of accidents that happen from tourists coming up they don't know how to drive in mountain passes and then stopping behind a, a blind curve because they're taking pictures in the lane of the highway instead of pulling over out of their car and you know not just not thinking like they're in tourist vacation mode well that's great you know we love that because that's how we survive but at the same time like that causes severe accidents, that, that causes delays, that, you know, we have a medical emergency where we've got to get down in the valley or something. We, we shouldn't have to, you know, deal with all of that all the time. So, you know, there, it's just, and I think it's part of it is education right. of these people as they're coming in. Maybe we need to do a better job. We've done a really good job of marketing to the people that want to come up here and, and kind of doing that beforehand with our Visit Essence Park tax district and stuff. And maybe we need to, to do more with education using that same sort of mechanism where, hey, you're coming up to Rocky Mountain National Park. Well, did you know that we have these issues with fires and, you know, this is what you need to know about it. And there yeah. was some of it during the, the fires itself, but I think we need to do some of this education outside of when there's a fire happening or right. when there's a pandemic happening. Like, we need to just be educating people in general. Like if we're bringing you here to get your tax money and your, your sales and stuff, we need to do our part of educating you, like how to drive in the mountains. You know, you don't you don't have to break when you're going uphill. Right. Um, you know, things like that. Yeah. No, and I guess they probably don't have nearly as much like communication or connection to the town that you know a resident would have. Like they certainly won't know like about your page. Yeah. Or any yeah, of that. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much just locals uh, and word of mouth. Yeah. So that's definitely. 
definitely seems like it could be like a scary thing if it were to happen, like even compared to how it was. Right, right. And we don't even have like an emergency broadcast radio station here. There's no TV channels here. You know, you're relying on like the town's messaging, newspapers messaging, my Colorado switchblade stuff. <laughs> you know, you've got a few things, but not a unified force. And, you know, if you're not online, if a cell tower, cell tower goes out, like we're all screwed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, that's emergency communication. By the way, there's oh, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I looked up the page as well. I bookmarked it, so I'll definitely look through it. That's really interesting to me. Um, I guess that's mo or a lot of what I had. Did you have any? No. I guess as one kind of final thing, um, do you think there's anything that, like any one thing that you think the town is really needing to be focusing on right now in order to improve natural disaster risk or wildfire risk? I think communication is a big deal. I mean, there's a lot of mitigation. They've done a lot of partnering with, um, you know, Rocky, the Park Service and, you know, different county entities, you know, working together to do fire mitigation and to, to kind of come together to help when something happens. <clears throat> I think the one aspect is that really there's a certain amount of vulnerability with is like, what do we do if the cell tower and the internet go down? Because um, they're interconnected and there's like one line coming up. Mm -hmm. And if that goes down, we, we have no phone service. You know, most of us with landlines are on VoIP, um, you know, and, and the internet and cell phones are how we communicate right. in town. And what happens when that tower gets hit or, you know, just the line coming up gets hit because then everything goes down. We've had times where all cell phone service and internet communications have gone down. We don't have a town radio station. We don't have, you know, uh, an air raid siren or, you know, whatever you might have yeah. in small rural mountain communities like we used to have up in Montana. Um, we don't have that. So what are we going to do there? I think I think we need to really focus on better emergency communication, not just amongst, like, the different agencies that are responding, but just out to the general public. Right. Yeah. And that, that's almost like an infrastructure issue, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to have redundancy in our cell towers and internet uh, providing and um, that we need to have some sort of fail safe for if that all goes down, right. like what are we doing? Like there's just no plan that I know of that other people really know of as far as what are we going to do there? You know, where do we go to look for information when we can't get online? Right. I guess, is that something that people are looking into? I mean, obviously, I imagine that costs a lot of money and that needs grants from outside. And that we're, gets we're so busy just trying to figure out workforce housing at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how many people really. I'm sure there are. But, you know, I, I, I think right now we're so focused on other issues right. you know, coming out of the pandemic, dealing with the economy and, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to, you know, sustainably have enough people up here to work to sustain the businesses we have when there's no housing in town whatsoever. You know, there's a lot of issues, and um, I don't know who's working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's definitely good to hear that perspective because from the infrastructure, especially, we've never really heard that before. So that's really interesting. And I may be mistaken in it. Too. Sure. You know, maybe there is something there that I just don't know about. But, right. You know, if anyone's going to hear about it, I'm probably going to be wrong. Right. So <laughs> absolutely. I know people call me saying, "What's happening when something starts kicking off?" Right. All right. Well, I think that's all that I had. Really All right. Well, there was that interview with the uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute students. 
And um, yeah, I thought, I, I hope anyway that you, you found it interesting as well. A um, couple of the other stories I'm working on, I'm still reaching out to Lori Dale Marshall to talk with her about the uh, some of the impacts we're seeing in the community with affordable housing, workforce housing, and the short-term rental uh, issue. I'm starting to get wind that uh, the chamber is going to be uh, pushing back along with uh, the new roundup of town trustees to possibly revoke the short-term rental fee that just got passed at the last um, town meeting. So we'll see where that goes. I'm going to dig into that a little bit. Also have a story possibly coming out of the high school. Um, The students came back to what they believe, and this is coming from my inside uh, sources within the school, aka my daughters, um, that there is a... uh, a new vape detection system that has uh, quietly been put up in the school public bathrooms. And uh, I've, I've, I've got pictures of them. And um, I, I'm a little concerned that I didn't hear anything about it. That as a parent, um, I, I didn't catch anything that said they were going to be putting this in. And after looking at the specs of the device, they have the ability to do audio recording. And I think there's a privacy issue there. If you're in bathrooms where there is a perception of privacy and, you know, um, I, I don't know. I, I got to wait in here. I've got two calls into the principal over at the Estes Park High School. Have yet to hear back. Um, it was very clear what I was calling about. So we'll see when that conversation happens. They're just back from spring break. So I'm sure things are, are busy and crazy. But I'd like to get to the bottom of what's happening there and what the, uh, why the initiative was taken on. Um, these are expensive units too. Just the list price that I found them listed online is about $1,200 a unit. Um, and you know, I'm all, I'm fine with having things that are there to keep kids from smoking pot or cigarettes and vaping in the bathroom. Um, but, uh, I don't know about the audio recording capabilities that to me seems like it might be an invasion of privacy, but I don't know for sure. So I'm going to get to the bottom of that story. Just kind of a heads up as to what I'm working on. Um, so I will talk to you again soon. I got to get to writing. I got a lot of writing to do today. Well, I hope you have a glorious Wednesday afternoon, and I will talk with you soon. I'm Jason Van Tatenove, and you've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade.